This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, and others with topics that will pique your curiosity. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Austin Channing Brown about her powerful book titled, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity and a World Made for Whiteness. I'm Still Here gives an eye-opening account of growing up black, Christian, and female in middle-class white America. It presents an illuminating look at how white, middle-class evangelicalism has participated in an era of rising hostility, inviting the reader to confront apathy, recognize God's ongoing work in the world, and discover how blackness, if we let it, can save us all. Austin Channing Brown is a writer, speaker, and practitioner who helps schools, nonprofits, and religious organizations practice genuine inclusion. Austin Channing Brown, welcome to Books, Beats, and Beyond. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for allowing us to do this. So, what is it about your life experiences that compelled you to do the work you do and Mm -hmm. that led you to write this book? Mm -hmm. So um, I grew up in predominantly white spaces um, (laughs) for a good portion of my life. Um, (laughs) And I feel like there's this like prevailing notion that if you grew up around white folks, then um, you grew up with like no problems, Mm. (laughs) you know, (laughs) like like you weren't being shot at in the hood. Like you, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah or in the south you you know what i'm saying yeah and and i was just thinking you know it's just a different kind of dangerous mm-hmm. you know it, it isn't necessarily a physical dangerous and 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 we need to talk about places that are physically dangerous mm-hmm. um but growing up around white folks still presents a whole lot of challenges mm-hmm. um when you're one of just a handful of people of color right and so i really really just wanted to explore that a little bit and um, and really, honestly, say to people of color who are just one of a handful wherever they work or go to school, like you're not alone because <laughs> it's you know it's so yeah. easy to feel isolated. Yes, it is. Um, when you're just one, you know, there's three of you in like a room of 250 people, like mm-hmm. that feels lonely. It does, yeah. And, you it, know? and I think it's it's incredible because as I opened the book, one of the first lines were white people are exhausting and I, la- I laughed so hard right i was like oh my god i know what you mean it's not a for my audience out there is i'm not saying there's something bad about it you but right. you, you got to understand the context of the environment right? it's true it's so true and i you know people are so funny they always ask me like so who is your primary audience when you wrote this book and i'm like can you not tell it's people of color like right. the first line is white people are exhausting <laughs> like i really thought it would be clear from the get-go yeah. <laughs> this book was written for right but i i am so glad that you say that because um that's the first line because i'm trying to say to people of color i get it right. and you're not crazy you're not making things up you haven't lost your grip on reality you are tired and you are tired for a reason <laughs> exactly <laughs> sometimes i i I've, I've, I've observed this sometimes where I have my, a, a white friend and we might be in a situation where it's just black people and yes. I can see their demeanor change. I see what they're feeling. 
And I'm like, that's what we feel most of the time. All the time. And you can't tell me that's not exhausting. It doesn't mean you don't like us. It's just, there's just this pressure that you have to represent everybody. That's right. right? And you're constantly adjusting to that culture. Yes. And I think white folks only feel it in, like you said, this rare occasion when they're in the minority. But even then, you know, it's so funny. I had a a white guy come up to me the other day to tell me that he visited um, someplace in Africa recently. Mm. Um, And he was the only white (laughs) person. He didn't say where in Africa? I mean, I don't believe so. Maybe he did, but I don't remember. You know, you know how that goes. (laughs) Um, And he said, and I have to give him like just a teeny tiny piece of credit for this because, you know, he was like, you know, I've I've experienced that, you know, Mm. where I've been the only one. And. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he said, right. And then he said, um, except they did treat me like royalty. Wow. Like, yeah. <laughs> 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 he was like, I don't think I ever touched my bags because someone was always handling them. Like we got escorted everywhere. He loved it. I was it. like, I need you to understand <laughs> that is not my experience. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> We would call that black privilege. But anyway. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in the book, you talk about how your name um, placed you in many partic- peculiar and like uncomfortable mm-hmm. situations because people would thought based solely on your name <laughs> that you were a white male. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about one of those situations and what you really learned from that? Yeah, so I um, first learned that that's why my mother gave me this name Mm -hmm. um, in a a library situation where the librarian didn't believe that my little library card was mine. (sighs) Yeah. And I was like, what is happening here? I don't understand. Like, do you think I stole the library (laughs) card? You know, like, what is happening? Um, And that's what my mother told me. Like, we were were being purposeful. Like, we were trying to deceive people so that you could sort of bypass discrimination. (laughs) Um, You know, when I got older. And what's really interesting to me is that it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Worked well, huh? It used to work. (laughs) 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 So it is not uncommon for me to, like, when I have a an interview for like a job mm-hmm. um first of all for the person who has to like come get me out of my seat <laughs> um to be real hesitant oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. because they're nervous that they accidentally invited the black girl instead mm. of the white guy mm-hmm. you know so they're like um are you and then they don't know what to say like our next candidate <laughs> are you austin are you you know like right. there's this long pause i'm like Yes, I'm Austin. Hello. <laughs> My appointment is at XXX, you know? Right. <laughs> I am supposed to be here. Here's my ID. Here's my ID. <laughs> Will you accept my library card? <laughs> um, and then, like, that, like, they're immediately calmed down, right? They're like, okay, mm. I got the right person. That's, that's good. Um, and then I walk into, like, where the rest of the group is for this, like, whole group interview. Wow. And I swear, every time I walk into the room, people look at each other. They look down at my resume. They look back up at me. They look at each other again. Like, it's the same thing every time. And it is so clear that they're like, should we have known? But that's so scary. (laughs) I mean, I am like literally just waiting for it to pass. But the, but you, you got to understand how scary that is because yeah. their whole notion is 
they were looking for a white male. Right. It was had right. they probably were skipping over all of the applications that they assume were black or female. Well, you know what's really <laughs> funny is that since I graduated from college, I don't think there's a cover letter that I've written where oh, I haven't wow. said explicitly I am a black woman. Wow. So I think it's so funny that the power of my name still overrides even when I say clearly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i am a black woman i want to work with other black people i am uh, right like yeah. this is why i care about justice like there's a whole paragraph dedicated wow. <laughs> to well, the fact that i am a black woman and and people still miss it so that's crazy so they see austin channing brown white guy put it in the yep. good pile <laughs> yep. Whoa. Yep. they don't even read the rest isn't that something they don't even read the rest or it doesn't register right. you know or maybe just one person read it and then didn't share and nobody else thought <laughs> anything else you know what i mean yeah. like i don't know how that works but yeah <laughs> so, i it is inevitable so how does this affect the work you do um in the yeah. places you go i mean you do yeah. a lot when it comes to um, Christian organizations and right. you know what, what those organizations are trying to help the communities and help others but still you probably bump into a lot of still racism and and, and sexism around your name let me tell you and oh. let me tell you <laughs> lord have mercy <laughs> so i i have been through a process and a, and a big portion of the book is is about uh, quite frankly my own journey and understanding my place in racial justice right because I think we all have different locations, right? There are some Black folks who do work in Black communities, and they do that well, and they do that beautifully. And there are other folks who are like organizers, um, and and there are folks who like really enjoy working with white people who are just waking up. Mm-hmm. And that's where I spent a lot of my time in my early years, um, particularly because I was in college, you know, mm-hmm. and um. I think we were all right, right. waking up to some yeah. degree, you know, exactly. at that point in our lives. But the longer that I've been in this work, the more convinced I am, or the more clear I am about who my audience is. Mm. And I am just not great at working with folks who are still sort of at their one-on-one stage, still trying to like figure things out. <laughs> and for a number of reasons, one, my temperament, mm-hmm. um, to the way that I talk, like I am just so um, clear. Like I just don't, I don't know how to make it sound pretty. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Like, right, I right. Just, this is I what just it don't is. Have that ability, yeah. and some people do. Right. Um, I am just not one of them, and um, and I think the other, like honest to goodness, thing is that um, I'm not very good at like defining terms and um. Like people, like I've gotten on interviews and people have been like, so can you define white fragility for me? And I'm like, no, I cannot, (laughs) but I can tell you what it looks like. (laughs) Yeah, right, (laughs) right. And And so I have a tendency to work with folks who are already in it, who are looking for that level of honesty, who are looking for the hard conversation, Mm. Um, you know, and, and do I still run into people who are super problematic? Absolutely. Right. But the more clear I get about um, what I expect from an organization or from a group of people or from a church, um, then I can say, you know what? You should hire me. I'm going to be there. We're going to have a great time doing this. 
Or I'm going to say, listen, I got this girlfriend over here. She's amazing. She is who you need. Mm, right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> where? yeah, not hire me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're going to stop right here and take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hallelujah. Oh, Lord. Where I'm from, it go when they bored. We ain't supposed to be here, Papa Cork. God did it. Oh, I'm flexing. Yeah, of course. Made it out the bottom. Of course, I ain't gotta worry about a thing anymore. I just. Yeah, of course, with a kind of thorns, feeling like a king. Yeah, of course, made it out the bottom. Of course, I ain't gotta worry about a thing anymore. I just. Yeah, of course, with a kind of thorns, feeling like a king. Yeah, of course. Yeah, young little hitter like a maestro. Ain't been anywhere that I can't go. Shotty told me I'm a star, told her I don't need a gas. What I really, really need is good credit and a bag. Mama saw me sign a deal, I told her, there go. Now I'm waking up and lost on the wood floor. On my pride, I'm Ufasa. Flex boy, out of God said he got it, so I stress not about it. I just, ooh, I'm a tired hitter, yeah, I really do. People coming for the squad, get a coffin in the news. Been a king from a king, so my rings got a ring, now my chains got a gleam. How you gotta drive with that power, need a horse Young run like a demigod with a force I've been feeling charged cause I'm plugged in the source Playing from the end, I win, yeah, of course Hallelujah, oh Lord Where I'm from, it go when they bored We ain't supposed to be here, Papa Cork God did it, oh, I'm flexing, yeah, of course Made it out the bottom Of course, I ain't gotta worry about a thing anymore I just... With a kind of thorns, feeling like a king, yeah, of course. Made it out the bottom. Of course, I ain't got to worry about a thing. I think, I think the great thing about you growing up in both worlds, um, yeah. okay, almost like all white, or and then yep. you know, with your parents being divorced, you experience <laughs> right. some of the, the blackness, That's and right. but at the same time, you were able to, you had firsthand experience when it came to. Uh, it's sad that it's like this, but black Christianity and white Christianity, right? It's true. Because unfortunately, true. there's there, there's color schisms within Christianity. That's can, right. Can can you talk about your experience with, in a white church, and then talk about that compared to a black church, and yeah. and, and and talk about how you said you fell in <laughs> love with black Jesus? So yes, <laughs> how does that all work I there? Did. <laughs> So, um, so I went to Christian schools my whole life mm-hmm. and from like the time I was in preschool. So I don't, um, I have, I, I have actually never, ever had one class in a public school. Oh. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so when I talk about like my elementary school days in particular, they were marked every Friday by a chapel service. Mm. And in that chapel service, we all had to have our um, little blue Bible illustrated um, NIV Bibles, and we were expected to take our little Bibles to chapel service, mm-hmm. and we would have um, most often a white guy um, get up and and try and teach all of us kiddos <laughs> um, about how we needed to behave. Right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing that I remember very clearly is um, a um, oh an egg to try and describe the Trinity. Really? I remember a tube of toothpaste being used to describe how when our words come out of our mouth, we can't easily put them back mm. into the toothpaste <laughs> bottle. Um, right? But so many things were either trying to like simplify theology for a child um, 
or trying to say, here's how you need to be a better person. Mm. Um, don't lie. Don't. Um, I remember one guy who just like went on and on and on about a kid who told a lie and then had to tell another lie to cover up that lie, <laughs> right. to cover up another lie. Right. And so we're like really cute stuff, but definitely all about behavior. Right. <laughs> right. And so then at 10 years old, I walk into a black church. Mm. And first of all, the first thing I notice is that everyone is clapping on the two and four. Uh. And I think, holy <laughs> crap. <laughs> <laughs> You could be in a room full of people and everyone claps on the right beat. What? And then there was like this huge choir, which I had never experienced before. And then there was this pastor who could not stand still and who was so fired up about his sermon that he needed a towel to wipe the sweat <laughs> away, right? Like this was not some like guy in, in jeans <laughs> with a little toothpaste bottle, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, right. And this pastor would talk about um, how, how God was still aware of the woman who couldn't pay her light bill mm. or how, how God hadn't forgotten about the family who didn't have transportation made it real and was using the bus you. in a city that is not transit friendly. Mm, mm-hmm. um, you know, like immediately, and, and of course, like black churches definitely talk about resisting sin and being a good person right. and all that jazz. <laughs> but that wasn't the whole of it, right? Or mm-hmm. th- There was so much more about God being able to see us um, and God caring about us and God caring about our social situation. Right. And that was something I had never heard right. in the chapel service before. And, and the crazy thing, uh, rest in peace to Dr. James H. Cohn yes. when it came to black liberation theory. That's right. Did you really see that happening in those, in the, in, in the, the, the economy between the white and black church when it came around that, those concepts? Oh man, I, um, In every classroom where there was a picture of Jesus, it was the white laughing Jesus. White laughing Jesus. Wow. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And there were um, all of, there were like precious moments Bibles everywhere with all the like big white faced blue eyed, Mm, right? mm, Characters who portray all the, like all the characters. (laughs) Um, Our illustrated Bibles, I'm pretty sure, had all white characters in them. Like, it was just sort of an, it was unspoken, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and limited in that that Jesus um, cared about my individual relationship with him. Mm -hmm. Right? And that was the beginning and the end of Christianity. That was where it started. That was where it ended. Yeah. And so it wasn't until I walked into a black church that Bible stories that I had heard forever came to life, huh? <laughs> that I knew backwards and forwards yeah. suddenly took on new life, right. you know? So to hear the story of Exodus in a social conduct mm-hmm. context, mm-hmm. which is so much easier to get to, quite frankly, than like, right. Jesus wants to set you free from your personal, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, right. It's actually easier to understand in a social context. But I had to attend a black church to hear that. Right. And I think yeah. what was interesting is, you know, when you when your parents did separate, and I can't remember which well, your parents live more in the black community, but you, you know, you, 
you never you felt like you never fit ever truly fit in with the white community and and that and you didn't care that you were okay with that but you didn't know how to feel if you lost the your blackness lord have mercy let me (laughs) tell you how afraid i was (laughs) 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 into an all-black space for the first time i was like wait a minute (laughs) (laughs) how did you juggle those worlds like how do you i mean at at such a young age turning on and off so hard it was yeah Yeah. i the first i I would say honestly the first two summers were a real struggle for Mm. me um i was sick a lot because i was making myself sick like Mm. i i I preferred to be sick and at home than feel great and be in this really uncomfortable situation for myself Mm. um I think I was also truthfully just kind of a weird kid and that I was always more comfortable around adults than kids my own age. Oh, okay. And um, especially in like elementary school. And and that didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> Who's the old soul? <laughs> not, yeah, yeah. So I like always made friends with like the the summer care workers. <laughs> it's just really weird. I knew things about adults I really should not have known. Right. Um, but it took so much energy to try to keep up with pop culture because I didn't have a lot of touching points because I was in a private Christian school. So there were no kids who were bringing like Ebony to school or bringing Essence to school. You know what I mean? Um, And back then, you know, parents could actually still control what you saw, what you heard, what you listened to. Mm. So I remember like trying to make little tapes on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) And my parents would come and be like, what are you listening to? Oh, right. yeah. um, you know what I mean? Yeah. There was no internet. That's you know, right. <laughs> we had one TV. I didn't have a TV in my room. Um, so I couldn't like sneak and watch things that I wasn't supposed to be watching. <laughs> you know, so I, my, my, like my parents really were able to quote unquote protect me, mm. right. From anything that they were either unfamiliar with or like genuinely didn't like. Mm. And so to walk into a space where kids knew all the things that I did not know was so intimidating. Um, And I couldn't pretend I couldn't, I couldn't work fast enough, hard enough um, to pretend that I knew what was going on and that I couldn't participate in the conversations. I had never done these dances before. It was like the butterfly, the Tootsie Roll. What is this? Can I do it? You know, and is the first time I try going to be in front of like 20 of my peers? That doesn't sound like a good idea. You know, it was just constant intimidation. And it wasn't until I think the third summer when I met a little girl who actually lived down the street from Mm. my mom. And um, she, I don't think she was an only child. I think she had an older sibling, but I think that older sibling was way older. So she felt like an only child. <laughs> and so she just like befriended me. <laughs> oh. I'm so grateful. I think she was sorry. So she, you know, <laughs> no. so I would go over to her house and she would have all the magazines. Oh, okay. And she would turn to the appropriate radio station <laughs> and she would... <laughs> practice with me all little dances Uh, and she wouldn't laugh at me when I had no idea what she was talking about (laughs) um you know like she really took me under her wing and without trying to change me like she knew that ultimately I would probably still hang around adults more than kids (laughs) you know what I mean and she knew that I loved reading and that if we were going to play neighborhood kickball 
I was going to like sit on the sidelines, but I was not going to play. I was going to finish that chapter that I was reading because it was really important to me. <laughs> right. uh, you know, and she just accepted me as I was. And oh. because she did, so did other kids. Like other kids, you know, just sort of accepted my quirkiness. And when did you accept um, yourself? You know, it took me a while, but I did. And I think what was really wonderful was that um, I think I had a, like a lot of Black folks our age, um, the older I got, the more I was able to say, there's not one way to be Black. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And and I think I have to attribute, I don't talk about my little brother much in the book, but I think I have to attribute a lot of that to him too, because he is like total black nerd, <laughs> um, like into comics. He's a computer software developer. Um, he's like the smartest person I've ever met in my whole entire life. Um, but he can also kick it in black spaces, you know, that right. he's not just one thing. Right. Um, and neither am I. Right. And I think that has created space for me to accept other black folks as they are to not need us to all be the same. Um, and there's something so freeing about the expansiveness of blackness as opposed to trying to get us all to like, like the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying Book Speeds and Beyond, do us a favor. Go into the show notes of any episode, click on the iTunes logo to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. I think some other points that were pretty incredible in your book, um, when you were in college, right? Yeah. And you went on this trip, and it was called San. Lord have mercy. It was called Sankofa. <laughs> I mean, if you could talk about the significance of that trip and and Man. how that inspired you, I, I believe, yeah. to be a change agent. Yeah, it really did. So I grew up. My, my parents knew that they were going to have to fill in some blanks because I was at a white private Christian school, mm-hmm. you know. And so I grew up hearing um, 
about black history. And my mom was very purposeful about taking us to black museums. And so I knew a lot about black history, but I um, heard about this trip from my college roommate and she was biracial. And so she wanted to go on this trip, but she only wanted to go with me Mm. because she didn't really trust anyone else to like be able to handle the fact that she was both black and white mm. um, with sensitivity, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, sure. <laughs> you're like, I feel like you've left me with no choice. <laughs> um, so all that to say, I didn't really know what I had got myself into. Quite frankly, I did not seek this out. I was going to support a friend. Right. And so I get on this bus and it turns out that it's a three day trip through the <laughs> South. Oh, and this is from Chicago. So we leave. Chicago we drive all night long mm. and the and we have no idea where we're going so we just like trust the bus driver and the people <laughs> the truck. so we like quote-unquote wake up like sort of um after being <laughs> on this bus all night long and find ourselves at a plantation in Louisiana whoa and we're like okay this this is what we signed up for here we go <laughs> what year is right? this let's so make sure all now the black people are bracing themselves <laughs> <laughs> and Lord Jesus, we walk through that plantation and the tour guides. I remember walking through like one of the shacks that those who were enslaved lived in and the the tour guide pointed to a trough and said, now the slaves were really ingenious and in that they ate out of this trough, but then they would clean it out and also use it as a crib. What? Isn't, and I was like, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> Can you explain what the other people look like on the trip? Just to give us a background. Yeah. So <laughs> half the trip was um, black and half the participants were white. Okay. So we were all paired up together. Oh. And the expectation was that we would walk through the tours together, that as we sat on the bus, we would have conversations together. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And let me tell you, as we walked through this little plantation together, slowly all the black people started pulling away. (laughs) (laughs) We were like, did you hear her say that? (laughs) What did she say in your group? Is your group hearing something different than my group is hearing? Um, It was so problematic. They talked about how happy the slaves were. God, that was like Um, the beginning of alternative facts, right? (laughs) Lord Jesus. Yeah. I remember someone raising their hand, like trying real hard to be gentle Mm. and saying, did the slaves ever hurt themselves while they were picking all this cotton Mm. and singing the happy songs in the field? And the tour guide was like, oh, no, they were experts at this. They never, ever hurt themselves. They knew exactly What? what they were doing. And we were like, mm. When did, did any of y all explode yet? I mean, like, (laughs) Listen, I remember physically pulling two or three girlfriends back on the bus because Mm. I was like, you cannot assault someone on this trip. (laughs) That is not going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) We do not want to bail you out of a Louisiana jail. We don't know nothing about that. (laughs) Um, It was so problematic. So then we all got back on the bus, heated. All the black students, so angry. White students, somewhere between, like, confusion. Mm -hmm. And, like, some of them were angry. Some of them were completely clueless. Like, it was all over the place. (laughs) We drive then to Jackson, Mississippi, where there's a traveling exhibit um, for lynchings. Wow. (sighs) Like, 
three or four rooms with nothing but pictures of folks who have been lynched. Mm. And next to every picture was a little plaque that explained what happened. So like one plaque would say was falsely accused of stealing a pig Mm-mm. or was falsely accused of picking up a quarter or like, like the most oh asinine, yeah. stupid reasons to kill someone. Mm. And I'll tell you what was shocking for me is like I said, this, like the fact that lynchings existed, wasn't a surprise to me that I knew, mm-hmm. but one seeing a room full of oh, them, it, right. Right. Was like so haunting. And then two, I confess, I had no idea until that moment that lynchings were done with pride. Oh, yeah. So you saw the pictures of like I saw the pictures like with folks yeah. smiling and looking into the camera yeah. and newspaper announcements and postcards. Yeah. And I think I had always been under the impression that lynchings were done in the dead of night and that no one talked about it ever again i mean that's how they do in the movies absolutely exactly yeah right right and i had i had no idea so we all climbed back on that bus listen listen oh man let me just say it got to the point i'm cutting the story a little bit short but it got to the point where the divide between the black students and white students was so deep Mm. that uh (laughs) a black got up and she was just as calm as she could be and she said you know what I don't have a lot to say I just I just want to say that um that I think white people are innately evil (laughs) I think I think you can't help it it's not your fault I'm not sitting up here like blaming you she's like I just I just think there's no other explanation (laughs) for how you steal and kill Mm. and rape and maim. Mm. And I was like, holy crap. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But behind all of that, but behind, (laughs) but, but what, when, if I was there and I heard that, I would agree. Right. I would agree. But I'm thinking, how would the others like, Right, right. Like, I it's, like it might be plausible. I mean, it's facts. We're not saying them all of them are, but it's facts based on what we just saw. So I'm wondering I mean, how did how did the others respond? Like white people or non-black people? Right. I think the black folks thought that was a very appropriate response. Mm-hmm. Um, even those of us whose brains were like, I don't think that all white people are evil, but there was we were not booing her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> we were like. <laughs> At the very least, we were thinking, yeah, that's kind of how I feel. Right. Even if it's not what I think, right. it is definitely how I feel in this moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And most of the white students were um, shocked <laughs> <laughs> and felt the need to immediately like defend themselves. Ah, defend themselves. So, right. So wow. we went like right into like white fragility mode, right? Mm, um, yeah. And it was basically the moment that all white people fear, right, you know, when they right. enter these conversations, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that somebody is going to like lash out at them. And she was very calm, but still, um, those, those were some, some harsh words for sure. I'm just wondering um, the, the overall trip. What was, what, yeah. I wonder what they were wanted to come out of that trip. I mean, did, do you think they succeeded? Yeah. In- That's a really good question. So I would say, 
that we had some real, real honest conversations about race on that trip. I went yeah. on this trip three times. Oh, wow. Look at uh, that. You prepared. I was, young. Then you... I was young and naive <laughs> is what I was. <laughs> Full of idealistic energy. <laughs> and each time you went with someone different. And wow. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. And so... um and I'll be honest, I don't think the conversations were as deep, were as good, were as meaningful, were as risky or courageous mm-hmm. as that first trip. Mm. It was not fun, but it we immediately moved past politeness. Right. You know, and we were having honest conversations about how we felt and what we thought. And I think there was an extraordinarily high degree of learning between white and black students, Mm -hmm. but it was also a really interesting time of learning. I think particularly between the black women on that bus, Why is because we were connecting our stories. We were standing up for one another. We were, you know, we Mm -hmm. were walking through these museums together. We were, yeah, we were just having conversations that being at a white college didn't always lend itself to. Mm -hmm. I think because so often when we were together, yeah. we just wanted to like be joyful. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There's another one. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. Right. Like, do you want to have a dance party on Saturday night? <laughs> you know, like, right. we want to sit around and talk about black history. Right. Good Lord. Right. Um, I think it but was, the ability to do so was, yeah. was huge for us. I think yeah. it was interesting because. I think that's what the nation needs. They need that yeah. to be confronted with that truth and had yes. those uncomfortable conversations because for too yes. long, I think as black people, we've been uncomfortable. Now, and well, I think it's, <laughs> it's time for <laughs> others to get uncomfortable so you can start realizing what's going on around you. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I think that trip really is for young folks. That mm-hmm. is, I don't know that I could do it as an adult. Um, and there are people who do. I don't know if I could. I was a little, <laughs> it was a little much. We'd have to change some things about the trip before I could go on it again. Right. Um, but I do appreciate that more than anything for me personally, so regardless of how it felt for white folks, um, for me, it connected me in a way to black history that I had never experienced before. Mm. There was a level of emotional um, investment. Yeah. Um, there was a reality to walking the footsteps of my ancestors. Mm-hmm. There was so much information that I was like soaking up Um that it really does, you know, the, the word Sankofa means looking back to right. move forward. Mm-hmm. And that is really how I felt. Like after looking back, it felt like there was no choice but for me to commit my life to this. Wow. Because you, you, you said something in there. You said, I worked as if white folks were at the center, the great yeah. hope, the linchpin, yeah. the key to racial justice and rec- reconciliation. That's right. And so I contorted myself to be the voice white folks could hear. That's talk, right. T- talk That's about right. that and, 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 and how has that morphed over time? Yeah, so being in a like Christian college setting, um, and maybe this is true at other schools too, I just don't want to speak about that, which I don't know, mm-hmm. um, but it was pretty constant that you became the teacher when yeah. a conversation about race came up, right? Mm-hmm. And the more the more black students learned about our own history, the more we wanted to be teachers. Yes. Right. Like that wasn't problematic for us in our (laughs) our early twenties. You know, it was like, 
yes, this is what I know, and I'm about to teach exactly. you today. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But what I didn't realize was happening was that I was also soaking in the reactions of those white folks who I was trying to teach. Mm. So what became the most important was, um, did, did white people receive what I had to say? Mm. And if they didn't, was that because of my tone? Was that because I expressed too much anger? Was that because, right? Like, what was I doing wrong that I wasn't winning more white people to our side, so to speak? Wow, yeah. You know what I mean? And it was just a really easy, it wasn't conscious necessarily. It wasn't, you know, if someone had walked up to me and been like, I think you're making white people the linchpin and all this, I'd have been like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. what? Do you, do you realize how much I love being black? Um, so what made you, what made you realize, why do I care yeah. so much about yeah. what they think? We'll be right back. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. I got work all on the table, yeah My bros on payroll, hey, tell them goons to lay low, yeah Just keep it fresco, I'm on a whole new level So keep it muy sosiego, ain't no long top boy, they know They know I got that fuego, that fuego, 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 came up from that Sauce at that fuego, yeah. Stay with that sauce like Alfredo, yeah. Blessings they come when he say so. Hold up, hot to my haters, I'm Mano, yeah. I put my homies on payroll, yeah. Placed at the top like a Kanko, uh. I throw the deuce up to silence my enemies, right through that potato. Lighting up the city, the reason I write for. Giving the gospel with the people be needing that light show. Giving the pen and we deliver more sinners with eyes closed. See the light up in the dark, let the skin on my coat, yeah. I shine too bright with that light up. Seek you will find them who take that boy higher. Three for that win, my touch. Be the mic that's free from my sin Black ties in that fire on the table, yeah My bros on payroll Hey, tell them goons to lay low, yeah Just keep it fresco I'm on a whole new level So keep it muy sosiego What made you realize, why do I care so much about what they think? Yeah. So here's honestly what started to happen. Well, one, I I think that the conversation around racial justice changed, right? Mm. So in a church context where the white folks are like, yes, we want to be racially reconciled. Um, You know, black folks who were further along than me were able to say, this is problematic. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that we do this is problematic. Um, I also had mentors who were able to like help me discern like what was what is happening in this room right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the the thing that like was the biggest aha moment for me honestly happened um, about five or six years ago, maybe longer than that. Um, but it was I, I had already graduated. In fact, I had been out of college for some years by the time this happened. Um, but I was teaching a class on race. 
and a, a young white teenager had come in and he was trying so hard to get it. And it was the most adorable thing. <laughs> and he like took a risk and he raised his hand mm-hmm. and he's like maybe 15. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, I hope this comes out right. He said, <laughs> I am listening to like all the stories that are being told in this circle right now. And he was like, is it terrible that I might be glad that I'm a white man? Wow. Right? He yeah. was like, because I don't know, I don't know if I could handle like the oppression that you all are describing. Mm. Well, at least I he was, was honest. Like, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Bless your heart. You're like understanding what yeah. we're saying. Right. And you are acknowledging that you do not have the resiliency to do what we do. Yeah. But like that was what half of my brain was saying. The other half of my brain was going oh, honey, do you know how much I do not want to be a white man? Mm-hmm. Right. Right? Right. Like, like, I, as the teacher of this class, am failing you mm-hmm. because all you are hearing is how badly America treats me. You are not hearing how much I love being who I am. Right. Wow. Right? And so that was like the major aha for me where mm-hmm. I thought I will never speak anywhere again. I will never teach another class where people, especially white people, but even other people of color, other black women, other black, you know, folks are only hearing me say this is hard and this is awful and America needs to get it together. They're not All seeing those things the are struggle, true. the struggle. They're not, Hello. they're not seeing the, the optimism behind what you're saying, the glory That's of right. us making it through the struggle. Yeah. That's right. And all the things that make us amazing, mm-hmm. our art and our music and our writing and our language and our, like all the ways that we push culture forward right. and, and you, shame on me you know for leaving that part out yeah and so that was like the huge shift for me and and that started me thinking you know what when i teach a class from now on my standard for whether or not this went well is one how i feel after i have finished teaching mm, yes and two whether or not people of color want to come back mm, right that's, right. Yeah, I mean that's that's that makes perfect sense. And you you also kind of go on talking about how you don't have much use for white guilt anymore. Oh Jesus, you... I sure don't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how you were describing it in the book was so interesting to me. You speak all this stuff about Black history or just our w- w- what's going on with us in this world, and yeah. the white people will come up to you and act like you're a confession booth. I found that crazy. I, 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 I didn't know what else to say when I was reading it that. Like, really? On such a regular basis. So Why do you think, I think that? Is happening. Yeah. yeah. I think, one, whenever white folks didn't realize they were about to be in a space where someone's going to talk about race, right? Uh. So they're like conferences and things right where people know what they've gotten themselves into yeah you know what i'm saying but then there are spaces when folks have no idea like someone just invited me to preach at the church service Mm. and all these white folks just showed up thinking they was going to hear their pastor today and instead they get (laughs) me you know what i'm saying (laughs) so, so there are definitely spaces that i walk into where there are varying levels of um acknowledgement about what's about to happen mm And I think what happens is when white folks get really nervous that I'm about to stand up and be like, I think all white people are evil, right? Uh, right. Um, You know, like, like, 
how is she going to shame us today? (laughs) (laughs) And I think when they realized that I actually didn't come to shame anyone, that I came to talk about black history, that I came to talk about justice, Mm -hmm. that I came to turn um, scripture upside down, you know, Mm -hmm. from the way they've always heard it, similar to what happened to me when I was 10, you know, and when they realize that I'm inviting them into a journey, a hard journey, but inviting them nonetheless. Um, I think there is a sense of relief. One, I think two, there is, uh, there becomes a sense of guilt over ways that they've been complicit Mm -hmm. in racism. So, um, white folks start to think about that uncle that they did not, um, uh, stand up to when he started talking about the N word, you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, right. Like, like explicit things, right? Like not even the subtle things, but white folks be like, Ooh, I did not say anything. I did not do anything. Or that was me. (laughs) Right. Right. Like I remember being a teenager and the first time I used the N word, you know, like that white person who's like, Ugh, I have never apologized for that. (laughs) Right. It's a good time too right now. You know what I'm saying? And so, and so then. So now, so now we've got like multiple things happening. So there's a sense of relief and a, a sense of safety. Mm. There's, but there's a climbing sense of guilt that they are owning mm-hmm. that didn't have anything to do with me, but is present nonetheless. And there's a desire to return to being a good person. Wow. Right? Yeah. And so it feels like in that moment, the only thing that that person can do is walk up to the person who spoke, right? Who elicited all these emotions and say, here's what I did. Here's what I'm so sorry for. Wow. Here's, here's what I never spoke about. But what's- here's what I've never said to anyone. And I'm like, I need you to go like talk to somebody else. About <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you don't want to, you don't need all that. And you know what's telling about that? What's telling about that is that shows the privilege as well. You think you can just yeah. say it and you're absolved yeah. of everything. That's right? right. That's right. That, that was a good conference. I'm glad I ta- heard, heard Austin talk. Man, I can go on with life. I'm, I'm wow. wow. I apologize for that. No, I'm back to being a good person. <laughs> right. I'll never, right. I'll never use the N word again. Problem wow. solved. Wow. <laughs> right? <laughs> we'll be right back. Look at my bros, look at my face, all of us know we living by grace Look at my pose, look at my stance, I'm ready for the world, this isn't by chance Devil throw stones, devil got plans, but all I really know is heaven God's hands Still I gotta fight, throw up those hands, while you was on the gram, showing our fans I was on the grind, learning how to fight, I got enemies, roaming in the night They wanna take the wave, leave me on drive, but they're not flesh, let's get it right Demons on staff, left to the right, they always on task, especially at night I was on path, but then they arrived, I was headed up with the best of my flies Don't be thinking you can judge me, don't be In Mexico, I find a kind of mechanical. Yeah, I do a sin and repent, then I sin and repent again. Yeah, no, I should drop to my knees. I know I should call up a friend. If you're enjoying Book Speaks and Beyond, 
do us a favor. Go into the show notes of any episode, click on the iTunes logo to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Not only did you talk about when white people confront this, you, yeah. you kind of d- dug in when it came to the black church and how yeah. we, uh, the black church also kind of belittles criminals, blackmails mm-hmm. in a sense, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and don't see them as coming forth for redemption like yep. shame them you're not built for church you, you you're not able to how how do you how do you yeah how do you confront that i'm so that? glad you asked me this because a lot of people shy away from mm. <laughs> from the second half of the book um, <laughs> <laughs> um and and it's true that i i didn't i didn't realize how much of respectability politics i was swallowing mm. because in my head I knew that I loved my cousin um, who who participated in um, um, selling drugs, illegal yeah. drugs, and um, I, I loved him. But some part of me also felt better than him. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm. Right, like he is not making good choices, mm-hmm. um, and not and not feeling the need to like make those two things. <laughs> like, <laughs> come together at all right like just living in the middle of that like um you know and um and realizing that particularly like as a kid growing up becoming a teenager um that so often I was just repeating what other people thought Mm -hmm. not necessarily what I thought you thought yeah right like selling drugs bad Mm mm-hmm Right, like that was that was it. That was the end of the story. There was nobody to talk about. <laughs> there was nothing to unpack right. there. Right. <laughs> right, like just so simplistic way of seeing the world. So, how did you expand your understanding of of yeah, the injustices? I am so. First thing was um, reading the New Jim Crow. Quite mm, frankly, yeah, that's powerful. Um, Michelle Alexander changed my life. Yeah, um, I was so so ignorant of so much of what was in that book i mean don't don't feel like you're alone i mean that, that, you know, that was I mind-blowing mean, <laughs> yeah. so ignorant yeah right? and, yeah and what's bananas is that before i read the book i think that i would have called myself like progressive because i still question right. the criminal justice system right mm-hmm. like it wasn't mm-hmm. like i was like all police officers good, all drug dealers bad. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Like, like my brain wasn't quite that simplistic, <laughs> but there was so much yeah. that I didn't know in terms right. of how the legal system was being used, in terms of all the myths around black criminality. Mm-hmm. Like there was so much. I was like, well, damn, I've been sold a lie. <laughs> right. You know? And so that was truly the first thing that really um, allowed me to say, there's a lot more wrong here than right. I realize. So, so knowing that the church throughout history, when it came to the black struggle, has been there mm-hmm. a, on very intimate levels throughout yeah. the struggle, but still, this <laughs> the, the this this injustice, this racial injustice, still totally. people can be shut out of uh, out of church because of that, because like That's what you right. said. So, what are some of the injustice that injustices you see within the church? that yeah. need to be addressed so we can move forward and truly oh, represent. Man. Yeah, I think we are on the precipice of having to rethink how we do church at all. Mm, what do you mean? 
I think that we have really loved tradition. Mm. Um, and I think there's a place for tradition. I think there's a place for the old hymns. I think there's a place for still being connected to the churches that our, our ancestors created, that our grandparents erected. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a space for tradition. But I think there's a lot of old thinking that has to go. Mm. And I think that includes a multitude of justice issues. The way that the black church has too often, not all black churches, but speaking like way too generally, Mm -hmm. um, has been able to, um, looking for the right word, has been able to contain just racial justice for black folks Mm -hmm. and keep that separated from gender justice, Mm -hmm. (laughs) from women's equality, from the LGBT community and justice for them. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, like our ability to be like, only black men should be free. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is problematic. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, and I think that in many different spaces within the black church, that there is a revival of, um, women, I think there are questions being asked around the limitations with which we've spoken about justice, yeah. just for ourselves. Um, I think that we're also beginning to look much more creatively at pop culture. Mm. And um, so I think about the um, church in San Francisco that just had the Beyonce mass. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I, I feel like part of the tradition of the black church is like uh, religious music here, secular music there. <laughs> right? right. And so, and so really beginning to think about, you know, I think about all the, the black theologians around hip hop these mm, days. Right. Right. You know right. what I mean? Like, I think that we're, I think we're thinking differently. That's good because if you read the the book itself, it's always talking about the marginalized, right? The poor, right. the needy. Right. And you, it, it seems like uh, Jesus and everybody, they were in uncomfortable situations, right? Hello. <laughs> That's all it was. It's Sunday's not always supposed to be all about good times, right? That's right. That's right. And so I'm, I'm honestly, I'm really excited. Um, and again, you know, we can't speak for all black right. churches. So often we talk about the black church, like it's monolithic too. And it yeah. definitely is not. Right. It ranges from extraordinarily conservative yeah. to extraordinarily progressive. Right. Um, but I am really excited about what's happening on the progressive yeah. end and, and the new questions that we're asking. And I didn't forget about the white church people now. Hello. <laughs> now now Hello. that that's another that's another issue. And it is. the way you read the read the Bible is the same way you like you really have to step out, right? Yeah. Like you said when it came to racial con- uh, reconciliation in white churches, dialogue mm-hmm. was the way to go about it. Oh, Jesus. Let me <laughs> why, tell you how. why was dialogue the best way to go about it? <laughs> you know what? I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you what inspired that whole little section. <laughs> so there was a seminary. I don't even remember the seminary's name. And mm-hmm. it, truthfully, it doesn't matter because this happens. <laughs> um, where there were um, some white male professors who got dressed up in like what they would term hip hop gang paraphernalia. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And decided to take a picture of it and post it on social media. Wow. Um, and yeah, it was bad. It was bad, bad, bad. And so once people started like seeing this picture and how 
just off color it was like yeah. just just not good just mm. not a good look you know <laughs> uh, just not a good look and um lecrae was one of the people who called it out and was like what is happening here right. he's a real good um, mc too just uh, if mm-hmm, people who don't know mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> And so the on t- and this, so this happened on Twitter. So on Twitter, Lecrae was like, "Yo, what is happening here?" <laughs> and the, like the president or the social media manager, whoever, responded to Lecrae and said, "Would you be interested in coming here and having a dialogue with us?" Oh wow! <laughs> and Lecrae was like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> like, I do not want to come and have a dialogue with you. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> so. You- <laughs> and he was so sweet and he started naming like other women of color and things like if they were really serious about moving forward like mm-hmm. what they could do and who they would actually employ mm-hmm. um, but it made me think about how often when a university or a seminary or a church or a whoever messes up the, the thing they want to do is have a dialogue <laughs> right <laughs> and I just really begin to thought, think to myself I don't I don't know where the messaging came from that dialogue is the end of the journey as opposed to <laughs> the, the beginning, beginning <laughs> right. of the right like dialogue <laughs> is where we start in order to get to something else right Black folks are not sitting around just wanting to talk to white folks. I don't know where this idea, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like we have friends. I don't understand. (laughs) Black folks have friends and cousins and play cousins and aunties. Like this is not about our need to sit around and have a conversation with you. I think they had that dialogue with with you. You said at those (laughs) surprise seminars to them, they would come up to you and confess. That was the dialogue and it was done. Although your dialogue was, Okay, <laughs> you didn't really have you a response. I mean? It was a dialogue to them. It's ah. absolutely true. Mm. And so I've been trying to become more clear um, about how I enter those spaces, mm. why I enter those spaces, and what the organization hopes to gain, mm. right, from having me there. Because right. if it's just a dialogue, if that's all we're doing, right, take some pictures, put that else. on Twitter, right? You know what I'm saying? Mm. Exactly. Mm. If the dialogue isn't to create an action plan for change, then I don't know what we're doing here. Right. And you probably need to call somebody else. So what do you think it's going to take to, for true reconciliation throughout all Christian yeah. communities? I know that's a big question, but, you know, you, you, with your experience and what you see, what do you think some of the things it's going to take? I'll be honest. I don't know. Yeah. I, um, I know I had, like, another awakening during... Um, everything pertaining to Black Lives Matter. Mm. Um, from Trayvon Martin to um, Tamir Rice yeah. to Mike Brown, to, you know, like that whole era um, all changed me. Mm-hmm. And I, I, can, I can think of a handful of white folks who for, for them that's true as well. Mm-hmm. I am highly aware that there's a whole nother ring of white folks who did not experience like this aha moment oh, until yeah. our current administration became an office. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And that boggles my mind that like, that was the moment that was like, huh, there might be something wrong here, <laughs> right. you know? And so, so I, I, <laughs> I say that to be honest, yeah. like, I think it really is different for different people. Mm-hmm. And that's why I talk a little bit about in the book about me not being, um, 
the quite frankly the savior of white folks yeah yeah you know like i can't be the person who convinces them i can't be their conscious i can't like i can't do it right um but there is some like divine work there's some socio-political happening there is some openness and vulnerability there like there right like all those things come together and merge and that is what creates openness mm. but now and i can't manufacture that yeah now now you talked about how uh, you you have to learn not to fear the death of hope in yeah. order for you to stay in the work you do. Hope must die. Yeah. Now, I can hear yeah. people right now asking, without <laughs> hope, what is there? What is there, Austin? Yeah. How do you respond to that? You know, I, as a, as a Christian, I really do believe in ultimate hope, right? Mm-hmm. I really do believe that God is making the whole world right and... Um, that one day we will all be okay. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> I do not currently live in that state <laughs> of all things being made right, right, you know? And so it truthfully, it felt unfair to end by talking about ultimate hope as opposed to ending by talking about how often hope dies for black folks mm. who are committed to this work. Um, it just felt untruthful. And I don't think we talk enough about that, enough about how we accepted the job thinking that this would be a place where we would experience equality or how we um, watched yet another video and thought this is the one where the officer is not going to get away with it. Or, um, I mean, just there's a multitude of things, right? (laughs) That Black folks continue to practice hope for on a, like a daily basis, right? Like in our actual real lives and find ourselves disappointed. So what do you find ourselves having to put ourselves back together again? So what do you use instead without hope? What do you, what are you using to move forward to keep going forward? Yeah. You know, I heard the other day, um, maybe this was today. Oh, this is the beautiful thing, thing about Twitter. There are so many good things, and then I can't remember who the heck said it because <laughs> it's Twitter, you know, because yeah. it's so fast. Right. Um, but I heard someone on Twitter today write um, that she heard a nun um, say that hope is a discipline. Mm. Um, and, I, and some part of that rings true for me, that even though hope dies, I'm not afraid of it because I know that hope will rise again. Uh. I see. Um, yeah. You know, I am not um, relying on optimism. I'm not relying on good feelings. Right. You know, like whatever the the next place I go speak, I am hopeful. But I am well aware that it could all be disastrous. Right. So you know that the only thing that's constant is not being constant. Right. You, you, got you it. just focus you got on your it. goal and. If today it's it. sunshine, that's great. That's but if right. it's raining, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm still here. Mm. So, right? And and I'm still going to go to the next speaking engagement, right? right. Like, I'm not going to decide, I'm not doing this work anymore, right? <laughs> like, like, I am still hopeful. Like, hope died, you know, that day or hope might die tomorrow. Right. But the day after, it's time to get back to work. Right. Just Yeah. Wow. So how has this book truly changed you? Yeah. You know, I think it's made me clearer about what I think. I think being forced to um, 
write it down (laughs) (laughs) has invited a level of clarity um, that I don't know that I possessed before. I think if we, if you had asked me these same questions previous to writing the book, I think I would have danced around some things. I would have been like, well, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about dialogue? (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, I, I'm still giving myself space to grow and yeah. to change and to change my mind on some of the things that I've written. But I honestly feel really good about what I have learned to this point mm-hmm. um, as I participate in racial justice. Yeah. And I hope that it invites some level of freedom for other people of color who are engaged in similar work, mm-hmm. that they feel like they don't have to be everyone's confessional booth, that they can demand more than dialogue. Um, that they can still let go of respectability politics. You know, like I hope that um, they are, that people experience freedom as they read it. Well, Austin Channing Brown, I just want to say that this book was phenomenal. I'm, Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad that you're honest with yourself because there's many African-Americans that are definitely in your situation now or who were in your situation yeah. and yeah. they're not alone. And, you know, that's right we could still move forward and, and, and change this world for the better. And, That's uh, right. Right. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on Books, Beats, and Beyond today. We appreciate you. Oh, thank you for having me. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And you know what's cool is, by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, And we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, that will go toward the operations of this show. Also, click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. If you did this stuff already, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore.